Welcome to the Pick Place Podcast, a show where we talk about electronics manufacturing and everything related to getting the circuit board into the world. This is Chris Denny with Worthington. And this is Melissa Hogue with Circuit Hub. Welcome back, Melissa. Welcome back, Chris. You know, I should have said this is a this is a sick Chris Denny with Worthington, if you can tell from my bizarre sounding voice. But it's okay. I'm hopped up on ibuprofen and Red Bull, so I should be able to power through this one. Perfect combo. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me me laugh. I'll decide later if I'll edit that. I'll edit all the copying out. (laughs) Don't make me laugh. I'll try to. I'll try to mute that. But yeah, yeah, not feeling great. I don't know. Coming down with something here, but the show must go on, as they say. Yeah, the show must go on. But uh, yeah, exciting stuff going on at Worthington. My goodness, I feel like every week we got something new and exciting going on. We got a new, we got a new X-ray parts counter. Have we talked about that one, Melissa? X-ray parts counter. I don't know if we talked about it on the show. I forget if we talked about it on the show. I think I might have mentioned we got that on order. That'll be a fun – you know what? We could probably have a whole episode Mm. dedicated to that. Maybe we'll cue that one up, add that to our notes here. And we got a a magazine board to stacker, which sounds way cooler than it is, but I'm excited about it anyway. (laughs) Yeah, because I know it sounds super cool. Magazine board stacker. Everybody's like, "Yes, Chris, I can't wait to hear about your stupid magazine board for an hour." No. <laughs> but it's a lot more exciting when it actually changes That's your right. day today. Like, yes, yeah, exactly. So. It's exciting when you get to see machines doing work and making money. That's that's what it's yeah. all about. It has kept us quite busy. Try, you know, just integrating one little simple machine is so much more than just like, oh, plop it on the floor and plug it in. It's like, okay, we have to rethink. You know, there's a whole. There's a whole process here that we follow. And when you plop in a new machine, it changes your whole process. It really does have an impact. You know, you flap a butterfly's wings over here and you create a hurricane down there. <laughs> it, it, it is, it's no different. So, but it's all good. It's all exciting stuff, making investments, making progress. We're happy about it. So speaking of investments and progress, here's a man who knows a whole lot about it. Our guest today, Aaron Monker from Pipeline Design and engineering is our guest today. You may have heard that uh, I was a guest on his podcast a few months back now at this point, and uh, I was just excited to talk to him and, and wanted to keep the conversation going, so we invited him on the Pick Place podcast. So welcome to the show, Aaron. Happy to have you. Yeah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here and see where this conversation goes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and I and I say it that way, and I think maybe Aaron is implying too that you know we're an electronics show, a manufacturing show. And Aaron, how much electronics engineering experience do you have? Oh my gosh, let's see. On a scale of zero to ten, I'd say like negative two. Negative yeah. two. <laughs> I'm the least sparky mechanical engineer you'll ever meet. <laughs> well, I if do there's, not get electronics. If there's any sparks in electronics, we've done something wrong. So uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe um, that's a good thing then. Yeah. Unless we're working on stoves or internal combustion engines, we don't want sparks. So Right, right, right. <laughs> but so Aaron, if you if you don't mind for listeners who, who maybe didn't start, because I did hear from some listeners who started subscribing to your show afterward. They've really oh, enjoyed nice. it so far. Great. Um, good feedback. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What, you know, before you get into pipeline design and engineering, how about yourself? What's your background? How did you get into engineering? Obviously your whole show is about how did you get into engineering? We could probably go on for an hour just about that one subject, but maybe give us the the two to five minute version of it. Yeah. I I don't even know if I'll need that long, but uh, let's see. I've always been mechanically inclined. I remember when I was a kid, I would, I would uh, put together these contraptions like Rube Goldberg contraption alarm systems. I, I remember I had this this Michael Jackson cassette tape, right? Come was, on. Oh, way back in the day. It was it was I think it was the bad album. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. yeah. And for some reason I was I was a kid, right? I was like eight years old. And I was convinced that someone was gonna steal this tape and I had to protect <laughs> it. It was my job to Protect this tape and ensure I mean, that's, that no one. That's stole a it. recording you don't want to give up, man. That's a good. <laughs> no, album. no, yeah. absolutely not. Yeah, and I mean, I was in my house, right? So, like, who's going to steal it? My dad or something, or my your brother? brother. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a possibility. I <laughs> anyway, I had this it, in my head that I, I had to put together this al- alarm system for it. So it was a 
a combination of like tape and yarn and paper clips and like mm-hmm. when you're you, kidding me. Yeah, what when you touched the tape, when you just jiggled it a little bit, it would set off this contraption of of mechanisms and that is ended amazing. A, in a loud wow. gong, right? And so I, oh, it's, it's the gong. Someone is <laughs> someone is actually stealing my tape. I better get out there and make sure this doesn't happen. So anyway, you know, fixing my bike and, and building clubhouses and things. I I love doing mechanical things like that growing up and let's see it was my senior year in high school we were sitting around the dinner table at home with the family and and, uh, my dad says what are you going to major in next year when you go Mm. to college and I say I I don't know I haven't really thought about it my whole life back then was going to the beach and hanging out with friends right I I really had not truly had not given any thought to college and what I was going to do where were you you from you from you from the shore somewhere I'm from Hawaii. I born and raised there. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, right. that's yeah. right. I have heard you mention that on the show. Yeah, that's where the name. Well, we'll get into that maybe. Okay, but that's great. where the name Pipeline comes from. And okay, so I say I don't know what I'm going to do. And my dad says, "Well, you should consider engineering." And I really didn't even know what engineering was. Like, if he had asked me to define what is engineering, what do engineers do? I would operate a train. No answer. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. The the whistle, right? With the trains. And so I said, okay, engineering, that sounds good. And that was really about all the thought I gave it. Very embarrassing to say at this point. But luckily, my dad knew me pretty well. and, And engineering has turned out to be a really great fit. I started off in the manufacturing engineering program, and then it actually got eliminated from from the university that I attended. The kind of the the replacement of it was mechanical engineering. So after the first year, I switched from manufacturing engineering to mechanical engineering. I'm glad I did. I think that's a better fit for me overall, and probably has more options, frankly, for mm-hmm. graduates. And that's how I got into engineering. Cool. Very cool. And so, so as Seinfeld likes to say, yada, 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 pipeline design. Yeah. <laughs> how, did, exactly. how did pipeline design come about? Pipeline design came about through failure on my part to be engaged with the work I was doing at oh, the company wow. for which I previously worked. Oh man, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. It's a pretty good story. So I was working at this, this other engineering company here in Arizona and great company, wonderful people, super smart engineers. And for the first few years, I, I did great. I thrived there. I got to build prototypes. I got to do CAD. I got to design and build things. And it was great. And for whatever reason, actually, I do understand what happened now, but it was a complete mystery to me back then. And for a long time, I started to become disengaged with the work. I just wasn't in it. I I couldn't get my heart into it. I remember walking around the office wearing earbuds, listening to music, kind of tuning out everything else that was going on around me. And, you know, that's, that's kind of a terrible thing to do when like you're not really aware of what's going on around you. It it just sends, I think, a pretty strong message to others there that like, hey, I don't care. I'm doing my own thing. Sure. Uh, I don't don't really care what else is going on here. So that was during 2008, 2009, and there was the recession, right? So the recession hit and work kind of slowed down at 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 this company, as it did for many companies. And they needed to make some changes. And it was, it was pretty, I think a pretty easy one to say, Hey, Aaron clearly doesn't have his heart in it. I think he's got to go. So that's what happened. They called me in and they said, Hey, thanks. But uh, you know, we can kind of tell that you're not super engaged anymore. So we're going to transition you from a full-time employee to a 1099 contract employee. And so that, that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So it was better than just we're laying you off and that's it for sure. So I left work one day as a W2 employee and I came back the next day as a 1099 contractor. Same project, mm. same work. The only thing that changed was the the, the government form that I had to fill out. And I, I did that for a little while, just contract work for that same company. That lasted a couple of months maybe. And okay. then the the project I was working on ended And so did the work there. By that time, I had started to reach out to some other people and say, hey, I'm doing this freelance thing. And if you need any any help with engineering work, you know, reach out and I'd love to work with you. And so I I had a couple little things going on. I had also a a few years previous to that started a photography company with a a friend of mine just on the side. Yeah. So it was like a side thing, side hustle. And that was great. We had a lot of fun. 
we made a little bit of money. You know, it wasn't going to feed the family long term. Doing like was, weddings and stuff like that. Exactly. Yep, yeah. Yep, like portraits and weddings yep. and commercial photography. And it was fun. We, we did that pretty consistently for about three or four years. Probably made, you know, 20, 25 grand a year that we split between the two of us. Sure. So there was a little bit of income coming in from that. So between that and the, this freelance engineering gigs I found, I was okay. It was a scary time at first, but you Did know, you have a family I, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So that oh, was boy. a big part of it. I, I remember going home that day I got laid off and it was the first home my wife and I had purchased. We had just had our first kid. Oh, and boy. so I'm, I remember leaning at the doorway of this, this modest home that we had in the bedroom and, and telling my wife, Hey, I got laid off and I'm not really sure what the next step is. And just watching her face drop, you know, yeah. understandably. And just going in a panic mode, being so yeah. scared, like, what am I going to do? I got a mortgage, I got a wife, I got a kid, I got to support all of this. So that was like, that was pretty terrifying. I remember feeling sick to my stomach for, for several days of after course. that. So that, you know, it wore off after a little bit. And, and luckily, the photography thing was there. And I did have some contract work. And I started putting my name out to some people I knew in the industry. And, and I started getting some, some freelance work. And I, I actually explored... A variety of things. I, I looked into web design. I actually did mm -hmm. some web design for a little while. I got a little bit of income there. I was looking into like commercial real estate and just <laughs> really different things thinking, I, I think I'm, I'm done with engineering. I, I thought I had fallen out of love with engineering. Sure. And one day my father-in-law sat me down and he says, uh, he didn't say it this way, but I'm sure what he was thinking is, hey, you married my daughter and now you have yeah. a kid, my grandson, you better figure this out pronto, exactly. right? Yeah. So he sits me down and he says, maybe it's not engineering that you don't love anymore. Maybe it's just the way in which you were doing engineering. Right. Yeah. And, right. and that was a really interesting and, and very useful statement for me at the time. And so I thought, you know, maybe the, maybe he's right. I should give this another shot. And, you know, I went to school for it. I spent all this time and my parents' money getting a degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so uh, let's give this another shot. And, and I did. And that worked out pretty well. And, and what I learned was that I really love having high-level ownership. And what, what took me years really to figure out the reason why I was so disengaged at work is because I, I was being micromanaged and probably mm. because I was mm -hmm. like so disengaged, right? My disengagement led yes. them to micromanage yeah. me and it was just this downward spiral. Yeah. Nevertheless, there I was being micromanaged and it just, it just sucked the life out of me. So uh, what I learned was that when I had this kind of high level ownership over everything, when, when I got to be the machine as opposed to just a cog in the machine, that was really transformational for me. And all of a sudden I loved doing engineering again. So sure. that is kind of the story of how Pipeline came to be. Fascinating. So let me let me ask a couple questions about that. So what kind of, like, you don't have to disclose who the company was, but like, can you give us a gist of who it was you were working for, where you were dis disengaged or what kind of things you were working on there? At the, the engineering company where I worked? Yeah, where you were just like earbuds in, I'm, I'm mm, checked out yeah. of this, man. Yeah, they started off as really some pretty cool projects. Okay. One of them was a GERD device, gastroesophageal reflux disease. It was a oh, everybody that, knows what that is. We all know what that is. Do you really, or are you <laughs> no, just mocking no. me? Okay, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> no, I've never heard of that in my life. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a fancy stomach stapler. What it did is it decreased the functional volume of the stomach for obese patients. Oh, who no kidding! Wait, yeah, and and for which is this disease, gastroesophageal reflux? It's it's, it's reflux. Right, heartburn basically. Cool. So um, you're working on medical devices, very specific medical, devices. medical devices. Yeah, yeah, and they were fun. It, it was I liked it. We started getting a little slow though, and there wasn't as much like design work and okay. prototyping and building, and it started becoming more paperwork and documentation, just because that was kind of what what the company was able to to scrape together. That's just where we were during that 2008 2009 time, and that I that didn't help things for me, right? That was not interesting work for me. Not that the work, you know, uh, I, I should never expect, no one should expect to just be fed like the most interesting work all the time. You got to roll with the bunches and, and do what, you know, what, what the company needs you to do. Anyway, call it immaturity, whatever you want to call it. I let that get to me and uh, became pretty disengaged, even though, you know, th there was some interesting work kind of changed a little bit to more documentation. That's that's kind of what happened. 
I think a lot of people can relate to that. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's fun to, it can be fun to remodel the kitchen. It's not so fun to maintain the kitchen. Right? There you go. Good analogy. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. But uh, if you maintain it, then you have a, you, you, you save a lot of money and you have a beautiful, you know, beautiful, clean and, and a functional space to cook food in, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yep. It's easy to get carried away with like, yeah, but I want to like tear it all out and redo it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So, so with all these little side hustles and everything, you're like, Hey, look, I can, I can turn this into something here. And hence pipeline design and engineering was, was born. And at first, was it just like an LLC, just yourself doing stuff? That's right. Yeah. It was just me in the beginning. In fact, I remember, I remember there was a friend of mine who we used to go to lunch. He also had his own business and we were both kind of in the same place, very different industries, but in the same places in our career, he'd just started his and was growing it. We used to go out to lunch every now and then. And I used to tell him, I, I love just being out to go out to lunch kind of whenever I want and mm-hmm. not having to worry about employees or anything. I really enjoy being on my own. Yeah. And I think there's there's no way I would ever want to have any employees or the liability that comes along with that. I just want to do this on my own. And uh, that was... 13 years ago or so. And now I just cannot imagine ever not having a team to <laughs> like to do all the work, right? I, I would never want to go back to being solo again. But yeah, it was just me in the beginning. And that, that went on for probably, I don't know, a year or so. And, and then more work started to roll in. And I really okay. never did any, any formal marketing. I did spend, I remember there was maybe a week during that time, that first year when things started to get a little bit slower. And so I just went online and started looking for online directories of of different manufacturers and maybe other product development firms that might be able to use me and calling them up, just cold calling anyone I could. And I I actually found a few people who turned into terrific customers. That's awesome. Just perfect for me at the time, you know? So I got some work from them and, and things started to grow a little bit. And then about maybe a year or so, and I hired a contract engineer to help me with the work. And then maybe a year later, I hired another contract engineer. And so we had this small team, me and a few contractors. And then in 2014, I hired my my first full-time employee. And then from there, you know, it was like every year we'd, we'd hire a few people. In fact, in 2020, we hired like seven people, I think. Oh, wow. 2020 was kind of a big year for us. We're still re- really small. I think we're Which about 20 people now. Which is odd considering most people got pretty slow in 2020. <laughs> yeah. What uh, made you so busy then? Well, we, we're largely focused on medical devices. Oh, there you and go. yeah, the medical industry was still going. So we did have some, some slow months, certainly. Actually, I think I misspoke. You 2021 that we hired a whole bunch of people. So 2020 was a little bit slower. And then towards the end of 2020, it picked up in 2021. We're super busy. Okay. So, okay. I, so many questions. I'm so sorry. (laughs) You had mentioned how you had wanted to be solo. You didn't want to have the responsibility of a team. And I'm, I'm curious, like, I totally get that. I 100% get that. The, the, The concept of freedom and being able to do your own thing. Like, I totally understand that. You said you hired somebody. What was that experience like? Was was that sort of a like for me? That gives me anxiety to think about because I now I'm now I'm thinking, man, I've got to make sure I'm bringing in the accounts because I'm responsible to feed this guy's family now. You know what I mean? Yeah. How, how, what was that feel? Was it scary to hire your first employee? It was absolutely scary to okay. hire my first employee. <laughs> yeah, for exactly the reason that that you say. I'm I'm pretty big on obligations. If I commit to someone that I'm going to do something, I will stress myself out yeah. all day, all night until it's done. And so I, I'd hired this guy and he was married, right? So he had his own little yeah. family and, and uh, yeah, it was, it was scary. I remember talking to a friend of mine at the time who also ran his own business and they were a little bit ahead of me. They had, he and his business partner had, had hired probably 15 or 20 people or so. And I said, yeah, I just hired my first employee and it's, it's kind of nerve wracking. And he says, ah, you know, after you hire the first few, you don't even think about it anymore. And that's, that's kind of been the case. That first one was scary, but uh, after a few more hires, it's like, oh yeah, we need to hire someone else. Let's bring someone else in. Fascinating. So, so how does it work with, presumably you hired another mechanical engineer, somebody that has a similar skill set to your own, just to kind of augment what you're doing for your customers. Am I right? Exactly. Okay. And, and so how do you, 
how do you make that determination of like what's appropriate to give them versus what are you still going to do yourself? And did you find that challenging? I didn't, but I think he did. To me, I, I, I think organization is one of my skills and mm. I kept things pretty organized and I would assign very specific tasks to him. And he he shared with me, he ended up working at Pipeline for quite a long time and was a very insightful individual. And cool. he, he shared with me at some point that, hey, you know, you're you're very specific in what you tell me to do, but I often don't understand high level, like why, you know, what's oh, the why behind yeah. this? What's the objective that we're really trying to finish here? And he was 100% right. I would just say, hey, go screw this bolt into XYZ machine. It wasn't quite that detailed, but there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of context behind it. And that was one of the things I had to learn early on was, I mean, that's why I got disengaged, right? I didn't see the higher level purpose when I was an employee. I would be micromanaged and say, go do this thing, go do that thing. And I do it, but there wasn't a lot of passion in it. And here I was doing the same thing, just micromanaging. So that was really helpful for me to hear from from him saying, hey, give me some more context. Give me a little bit more responsibility here. I'm an engineer, right? Don't just have me doing grunt stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. You you mentioned in uh, when, when we were conversing back and forth and, and talking about having you come on the show, a couple of interesting things, and I was hoping you could maybe speak to them. You said you talk about different productivity hacks that you use to manage yourself and your team. And I'm curious what you meant by that, how it might relate to what we're talking about now and trying to manage a team of engineers and that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. A couple things that that I can share here. One is this idea of having systems that are aligned with your goals. Oh boy. Uh, goals, objectives, however you want to put that. I'll start sharing this by uh by telling you a story about okay. me. Perfect. About 7 years ago, I started training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Oh wow. Super fun. Loved it. After I had a goal to get my blue belt. That's the second belt. So it's not like a hugely ambitious thing, right? So let's, okay. let's get to the next level. Yeah. So that was goal. my goal. Yep. Get, get the blue belt, right? And after three years, I had still not gotten the blue belt. And I wasn't going super regularly. I wanted to. I really did want to. I just yeah. couldn't get there. I, yeah. This was still when the business was younger. I was I was growing the business. I was working probably 60-hour weeks pretty regularly. And that was part of it. Plus, I had a young family, right? And I just I just couldn't get there. And so I ended up quitting. And it was a super sad day. And I, I thought about that experience a lot afterwards. Why did I quit? Why did I not accomplish my goal? Yeah. And what I realized is I didn't have a system that facilitated the achievement of that goal. It's really easy for us to set goals, right? That's the fun yes. part. Yeah, That's, New Year's resolutions. <laughs> exactly, right? We can all do that. We, we get all hyped up and we say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. The problem comes in executing those mm -hmm. goals. And that's where I think a system is really, really important because as humans, it's just too easy for us to get distracted. It's too easy for us to let life's, you know, this and that get in the way. Yeah. So what would that have looked like if I had had a system to help me reach that goal of getting my blue belt? I think a few of the things it could have looked like are taking a look at the calendar one to two weeks in advance. And if I saw there's a school event for one of the kids, blocking that off. So I knew beforehand mm. to go on a different day to jujitsu. Mm. So I didn't just miss it outright. Oftentimes I'd just be like wasted, tired by the end of the day. So yeah. what, what else that could have looked like is maybe I, I put into my schedule, like calendar in a 30 minute power nap, right? Something like that. Let me and, write and, this down. You're talking about looking ahead and planning and scheduling. Is, do I have this right? <laughs> I got to look, I got to look know, this up. I got to, it's I gotta rocket get, science. Isn't I got to punch these into the dictionary. Stuff. I got to, I'm not, I'm not familiar <laughs> with those terms. Melissa, are you familiar with planning ahead? No, what's that? No. Yeah, yeah, this is I, a, a new technology a new, that I have invented. Yeah, this is yeah. Uh, Pipeline's IP over here, looking ahead <laughs> and planning. No, Aaron, I don't think you get the gist of the joke. I am horrible at planning ahead. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. We, we all are. Yeah. We all are, which is why it's so funny, right? It's not a difficult thing to do. We just don't do it. Yeah. And so if I had had a, a system, that, that's the other thing. You, we talk about systems and people, I think, automatically think of this like, 
complex, huge thing that's really hard to come up with and implement, but systems can be really, really simple and easy. Mm. One of the best systems that that I've found is just putting things into my calendar and following the calendar. That's a wonderful system. So I... I mentioned that I really did want to show up at, at jujitsu, right? And yeah, I would sorry. I would have dreams about being there after I quit because I missed it Aww. so much. Oh wow. And so I actually did end up going back. I took about a three year break and about a year and a half ago I went back and this time I did have a system. Instead of just saying, I'll, I'll go whenever I have time, I dedicated three times a week. I'm definitely going these okay. three times yeah. each week so I know where I'm going to be. And and I, I'm happy to say about a year ago, I got my blue belt. So hey, congratulations. congrats. Thank you very much. The yeah. system worked. The system works. So I'm wondering how I can apply that to losing 20 pounds. Can you help me with that one? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great one. Let's dig into this. (laughs) I got a trip to Greece and I don't, I don't want to look like the fat American that I am. I want to make sure I fit in a little bit here. And by fit in, that was not a double meaning. I mean, literally (laughs) fit in my clothes, fit in my clothes. I, I think you were tongue in cheek a little bit, but let's, let's talk about that. Like what are the things that need to happen to lose 20 pounds? It's it's called exercising and eating less. <laughs> okay. All right. Not even thinking about diet or exercise, just in general for your workday, how do you make sure things get done? Like, do you have a system in place already to ensure that the new machine gets installed yeah. or you know, whatever it is? Yeah, what, what is I that do. system? I wouldn't be good like? at my job if I didn't. Yeah. Okay. It's, 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 it, honestly, it is, it is a thorough and, and careful checklist along with, you're not checklist. Because when I think of checklists, I think of like, I, I consider like a task list or a project list very different from a checklist. My opinion, a checklist is like what a pilot uses when they go mm. to start up an okay. aircraft. They're, yeah. they're following the same procedure every single time, which shout out to Checklist Manifesto if you have not read oh, this book. Love it. L- life-changing book. But Atul anyway, Gawande. Yeah. Yes. Great book. Yeah. The dude, dude's amazing. And yeah. it's like, this is like he's such an accomplished person in like so many areas of his life. And yet he's known for the checklist manifesto, which was like a total side project for him. (laughs) I digress. A tangent on the pick place podcast. Never, but, but project lists. So I have project lists and I have people I need to follow up with and I have a calendar and I'm, and I schedule meetings and yeah, it's, that's how I get stuff done at work. Yeah. So what would happen if you started calendaring in those like exercise activities? It was just part of your day. You wake up and Mm -hmm. you just follow the calendar. Yeah. See, it's following the calendar. I'd look at the, Mm. oh, I got to walk 30 minutes on the treadmill, but this donut looks really good. (laughs) Another thing that I have found very helpful in meeting goals is finding ways to measure progress. I've I've actually been trying... Okay. Here's my tangent. I've been super skinny my whole life. Like, Twig. Right. This stick. conversation's Skitty. over. We're done. We're done. We've had enough. <laughs> this is the the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. And I, I would get I mean not 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 a lot, but I, I got made fun of a little bit because I was super skinny. My nickname was Bones back in high school. And I've always wanted to be wow. a little bit bigger. I'm never gonna be, you know, the big guy, but sure. I wanted to gain a little bit of muscle. So lately I've been trying to gain weight, lean muscle mass, not just <laughs> not not fat. And uh, one of the ways that's been really helpful for me is is tracking my calories, right? Just measuring how much I'm actually eating. So yeah. I know I'm eating enough to have the mass to like turn it into lean muscle mass. But anyway, measuring things, the point is that measuring things is also a really wonderful way to to help achieve goals. It's a great point. It's interesting that you mentioned that because it, it, with this with this implementation we've been doing recently of some new equipment, it's sort of like, well, we know you know, kind of like in our gut, it's going better, but how does it, how does it really look, you know? And then we start to look at the data and we go, oh, it definitely looks better, but it doesn't look better enough. Like Mm. why this should be looking so much better. And simply by looking at the data, it it is so much more, how do you put it? It fires you up. You know, Mm. you're like that. We should be way better than this with all this new equipment we have. What's going on here? So I totally get being able to measure progress, I that is awesome to think about. Totally it gamifies awesome. it, right? Yeah, it's it totally. And this, yeah. I was just gonna—you took the words out of my mouth. I was just gonna say it totally gamifies it. it and, does. and so, how do you? 
how do you do that and at engineering level? So for example, right now we have this this perfect opportunity for me to pick your brain on this because I'm dealing with this right now. We believe that we have a pretty good idea to, to accomplish, to, to use software to accomplish a task that normally we would have to just you know, sit a human down and, and have them grunt work their way through this work. But we have a pretty good idea for some software to do it. I know how to measure placements per week and placements per month and, and board shipped and dollars and revenue. How do you, as an engineering firm, how do you measure your achievement of designing something and whether or not it's going to accomplish what you're, what you're hoping it will accomplish? Like this seems so much more difficult and you know, abstract than, than, Hey, a million placements a week. So there's actually a really robust tool that we, and, and many, many engineering companies use, and it's not super interesting at all, but it's, it's a product requirements document. We call okay. it the PRD here internally. Okay. And it's a combination of understanding and correlating user needs with technical requirements. So a user might say, I want to develop this new medical device. And mm -hmm. one of my needs as a user is mm -hmm. it can't ever slip out of my hand when I'm using oh. it. Okay. So that's a user need, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you know that you've accomplished that at the end of your, your development phase? Um, you have to translate that into a technical requirement. And sure. so this, this PRD, the product requirements document, it, it lists the, the user needs on one, in one column. And then in the next column, it lists the corresponding technical requirements. And so a technical requirement to meet that user need might be it, it needs to have bumps that are, you know, a 16th of an inch in diameter, sure. spaced mm -hmm. no more than an eighth of an inch apart, covering a square, an area of, you know, eight square inches or, or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So you have these user needs. That's where you start. You always start with the user needs. And then you translate them into technical requirements. And then throughout the project, you're looking regularly at these technical requirements. We have a traveler that we've created. It's kind of an internal homegrown document. And one of the things that project leads do every week is they, they look at this traveler. And part of that is to take a look at the, the requirements documents and, and we evaluate, okay, <laughs> Are we doing something to address this technical requirement? Yes or mm. no? If the answer is no, then, well, you need to start doing something, right? So by the end of the project, we have a little check boxes next to all of these technical requirements. And before we release something, we need to have a check in each of those boxes. And if we don't, there needs to be a really good reason why there isn't. Maybe the, there you go. the customer changed the requirement or the user need or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think the hardest part might be... For, you know, as you're describing this, I'm thinking of, okay, I, I have a very good understanding of the requirement and what I need this software to accomplish. That is crystal clear to me. Uh, you called that the user need. So I have the user need in my head perfectly because I'm the user. I know exactly what I need. The technical requirements to get there, I'm a little more fuzzy on, right? Because you could say, okay, I need these bumps to be a 16th of an inch, but then maybe another engineer goes, why don't we just put, you know, the gecko material on it? And then another person says, well, why don't we just make it the shape of a glove? And, and like, you know, th I think that's where it can get pretty complicated. And how do you make those kinds of decisions when your various engineers are disagreeing about the best way to accomplish the user need? I think the, the word disagreeing is really important. You want there to be some disagreement sure. in the beginning. If there isn't any dis disagreement, that might be a sign that you're not diving in deep enough to those requirements and you're being a little lackadaisical and say, oh, yeah, that's fine, whatever. You know, There should be some some discussion and sometimes it gets a little heated and that's okay. In fact, mm. that's, that's great, right? That's when you know that people care enough about these requirements to yeah. really make sure that they're defined well. Yeah. Interesting. And so then you, you know, somebody at some point has to make the call and say, well, either we only have so many resources, so we can't work on the glove, the 16th of an inch bump and the gecko material. We got to make a decision here and move forward with it. And presumably all of your engineers just, they go, yep, great. I no longer care about my idea. I'm going to make the gecko <laughs> material work, right? Nobody complains about it. Yeah. So we have a, a principle we follow and that's invitation, not compulsion. That's here at Pipeline. We, you know, we try to treat adults like adults, not adults like children. And we, we invite people to, to do something or to follow something as opposed to compelling them. Compelling, just flat out dictating, we're doing it this way, period. I don't care what you have to say. That's a great way to lose the respect of your team, right? Yeah. 
great way to to promote some animosity and just n- not feelings of goodwill. So the way I like to do things is is let's lay out all the requirements, take a look at them. We've got three different ideas for how to solve them. What you know, what are the pros and cons? We discuss them as a team and you're right. Ultimately, someone needs to make a decision. And so that person on in our team anyways, typically the project lead. But there's a lot of discussion that goes on before someone ultimately makes a call. And, and a lot of time, it never gets the, to the point where someone just has to make a call because you have enough discussion that the pros and cons of each are, are weeded out and just mm-hmm. organically you arrive at whatever the best solution is. Yeah, yeah. We, we have had some circumstances in the past where we, we had that situation where somebody just had to make the call because there was mm-hmm. so much disagreement and people were so just sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? So convinced of their own side of it that they could never come around to agreeing with the other side. And I, I can think of two specific examples in the history of our company where this has happened and it has never ended well. It has never ended well. It's never gone well. Like later on, either the person who lost out on their idea decided they wanted to find a different place to work. You know, it like it gets to that point. Mm. It, it's, it mm. can be really tough, you know, but you're right. It's only two times. I've been here for tomorrow will be 13 years. Holy Ooh. cow. Wow. Yeah. wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And only two times in 13 years have we had the situation where engineers disagree so adamantly that it has resulted in just, you know, whatever poor thing going on. But yeah, yeah usually we, we are able to come to some consensus on how to move forward. So it's, it's, it's not always easy though. I agree. It's not always easy. And, and it, it probably shouldn't be, if it's super easy, that, that might be an indication that, that there's more to dive into there. A, a trick that I have used with success, and this does not work a hundred percent of the time, right? There's always going to be those cases where it doesn't work, but something that has worked really well for me, let's say that, let's say that, you are Luke Skywalker. Oh, now we're talking, baby. Yeah, now yeah. we're talking, right? Now my childhood Star dreams Wars are coming true. Analogy, that's perfect for an engineering <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so you're you're Luke Skywalker and I'm Han Solo. And you, as Luke, say to me, hey, Han, we should get a dog. That would be fun, right? Name it and, Chewbacca. And it, name it, whatever you want. Yeah. Now, as Han Solo, I know that Wookiees eat dogs. And so I oh. know that's a bad idea, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now I could come out and just say, no, we're not going to do that. And if I say that, how do you, Luke, how do you feel? Look, you know what, Han? I want a dog. I want a dog. No, All my friends it. have dogs. We're here. If we're that. talking episode right. four, then I got to use his voice from episode four because he was real whiny <laughs> in episode four. So. <laughs> so that doesn't go over so well, right? No. Instead, if, if I were to say, hmm, that's a great idea. That's a very cool idea. Let, let's talk about that. Did you know that, that Wookiees actually eat dogs? What do you think about that? I think we got to get rid of Chewbacca because I want a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, that opens up some other options even to talk about, right? My point is I've had a lot of success as when someone provides a suggestion that I know is is not going to work for whatever reason, instead of just shutting it down, I like Mm -hmm. to ask a question back to them and have them work through the reasoning in their own mind and they'll get there on their own, you know? And when they get there on their own then they're sold. They're bought into the process, right? So that's one tactic that has been useful for me. I think I could could definitely apply that lesson to myself because I feel like a lot of times I I usually give the reason, but I don't think I do it quite as well as how you just described. Like I would would probably phrase it in a way where I'd be like, you know, Luke, we, we, we can't get a dog because, because Wookiees, eat dogs. We can't get a dog. Right. Whereas you, you'd handled it much like, that's okay. That's one way to handle. You gave the reason, but you handled it better. You'd be like, yeah, but Hey Luke, are you aware that Wookiees eat dogs? Like that? I like that so much more because it gets them thinking about it rather than you telling them, no, you Mm -hmm. can't do it. That's great. They work out the logic in their own mind and and then they're, they're bought in. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, all right. I got to apply that. Um, I got. Uh, how how can I apply this to losing weight before we go to Greece? <laughs> <laughs> think about that. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I there's an think analogy. About that there. one too. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That might be a stretch, Chris. I don't yeah. know. Maybe if I had multiple personalities, I could talk to each of them. And <laughs> there reason you, with there them you go. Yeah. About how to uh, develop how to a psychotic disorder to lose weight. You know. You know the ironic thing about all this is my sister is a dietitian, and one of my closest friends owns a gym. 
I just have to talk to the two of them about it and I can very easily <laughs> solve this, you know. You've already got it, the support there. Yeah. It's the self-control model inside that I'm having trouble with here. You know, that um, that is a good point though. The the whole idea of being accountable to someone, right? That's yeah. that's a powerful motivator. Oh, I, it's, yeah, it's one of the most powerful motivators. Yeah, right. I just, you know, that's, that's the reason, well, I'll bring it back to the weight analogy again, the, the ubiquity and popularity of programs like Weight Watchers, because you're accountable to mm. this program now, you're yeah, going to see yeah. these people every week. And, and if you're not making progress, you're going to be, you're going to feel like some <clears throat> kind of sense of embarrassment. So you're pushing yourself to make sure that you're, you know, there's that, that slippery slope there too, but totally, anyway, but totally, yeah, that accountability yeah. is, uh, is a real thing. This is an engineering podcast. This isn't a health and fitness podcast. <laughs> We gotta get, let's, bring this, let's bring this back around here. All right, so yeah. I, I, I think one of the things, you know, kind of to, we, we could talk about the, the best way to manage engineering teams and things like that all day long. One of the things I'm very curious to talk to you about though, you, you are an engineering firm. Do you do any of your own modeling? Are you, are you making any of your own things? Do you have any of your own equipment? Like when it comes to actually cutting some metal, do you have any of that in-house or are you outsourcing those sorts of things? Different engineering firms will do those, those activities differently. I know right. lots of engineering companies out there that have full machine shops internally. Sure. It's all integrated. We do not. We okay. outsource machining work, fabrication work, anything that has to do with metal or like precision cut plastic. We, we outsource that. We have partners domestically and also yep. overseas. Anything that's 3D, well, not anything. I'd say, I don't know, 80 to 90% of 3D printed parts we do internally. Okay. We, we 3D print quite a few parts. And interestingly, we actually use them as final deliverable parts. And, and oh, no a lot of, Yeah, a lot of people still think that 3D printing is just for prototypes, you know, looks like, feel like, but not not really a production solution. And there's some awesome 3D printing technologies out right now yeah. that are very well suited for production. We, we use 3D printed tools all the time. We nice. print them here, we print them yeah. here, and they go into, the, you know, this is the tool that forms the part that we actually ship, you know. Yeah. Usually it's not something that gets shipped with the final product. Usually it's a tool that helps us to create the final product mm -hmm. only because there's not a lot of plastics that go into the, what we ship, right? Obviously it's yeah. mostly copper and fiberglass and solder, but yeah, 3d printed parts, you know, they're legit now. And, and if you, even with, you know, I love, I love being an electronics engineer talking about a mechanical 3d printing machine, like an authority, but we have, uh, we're finding that FDM, that's kind of the most popular, like hobbyist level type of technology, right? Yep. There's high end. Time. Yeah, there's high end FDM machines. You know, you spend thousands and thousands of dollars on them, but man, are they precise and they're consistent. And we're getting some amazing materials out of those, even though it's still a, you know, a hobbyist level technology, I guess you could call it, you know, but just coming out of a high end machine. Yeah, definitely. There are a few manufacturers that we use. Um, they're, they're machines. There's one called Mark Forged. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, what they're we have. Great. Yep. They're great. You know, their machines range quite a bit, actually, depending on what you get. But I think the, yep. the least expensive one is something like $4,500. Yep. And it, it spits out beautiful parts. Awesome. Really yeah. strong, dimensionally stable, accurate, really great parts. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason I was curious to ask you about your your model as an engineer, engineering firm, as opposed to like you're not really a product company. Do you have any of your own products or are you mostly designing products for other people? Historically, it's been the latter. Over the last year, we have oh started developing a couple of our own products. And, and we okay. actually have one that's finished and released and a second one that it's, I would say, in like a, a beta phase right now. Okay. I'm going to... I'm going to table that. I do want to talk about that, but I want to go back to pre your own product as an engineering firm. Because if you think about in, in electronics manufacturing, it's not too different from mechanical manufacturing. You have mechanicals, you have lathes, you have CNC, you have mills, you have all these you know different machines to turn metal or some other material into a finished product. In electronics, it's very similar. You know, We have all these various machines to create a circuit board and to get it get it to where you need it to be. The expense of these machines for how much you generally need to use them is way, way, way out of whack for an mm. engineering firm. If you're, if you're seven people, you are not going to spend a million dollars on an electronics assembly line. That's, that would be crazy. And oftentimes you're designing products that simply cannot be built by hand. 
It's just in case, it's just impossible. You would you would spend months trying to build even one board by hand, and you'd probably screw it up. Right? It's just gotten to the point where it's so complicated. I have to imagine there's a similar analogy to the mechanical world where there's some things that you know even if you had a like say say you went on. Uh, you know, the equivalent of eBay for CNC machines. I don't know, <laughs> you know, and you got yourself a 19, late 90s spec CNC machine. And there's probably things you're designing that you simply could not build on such a machine to this day, I'd imagine, right? I think that's where 3D printing comes in. Certainly there are things that cannot be manufactured on like a CNC piece of equipment or welded together. And that's where 3D printing really saves the day. You can, yeah. I mean, almost make any geometry you want with 3d printing that's crazy that's crazy all right well yeah. that does not exist in the electronics world <laughs> <laughs> not yet um, yeah not yet there there are some pretty cool things people are doing with where they there's kind of two approaches where they're doing additive versus subtractive prototyping of circuit boards so for your for yourself since you're not quite as familiar with circuit boards i think much of our audience is but i, I if you're not maybe you'll be entertained by this a 30 second description of a circuit board you basically have a piece of woven fiberglass, right? You know, you guys probably, I'm sure you use fiberglass in your products too. Sure. Yeah. And then you just laminate a very thin piece of copper on top of it and on the bottom of it. So you have a little sandwich of copper. Now, a lot of times you want the electrical signal to pass through from one side of the board to the opposite side of the board. And in order to do that, you have to, you have to drill a hole and then you have to plate that hole with copper. So now you've created a connection from the top side of the board to this opposite side of the board. That process is still very difficult to accomplish without expensive machinery hmm. is to create that sort of, you know, pass that, pass that signal through the board. You can take a piece of copper on one side and you can etch away at it, right? So you can have a super high speed drill and just sort of etch away at it and you can create the, the signals that you want on the top of the board, or you can just have a piece of fiberglass and you can add copper or a similar material. So maybe it's like a silver ink or something, and you can create, you can create the signals the way you want them on the top of the board. So those things are gaining in popularity. I'm not sure how often they're used, but they are gaining in popularity. But for the most part, when it comes time to actually put parts on that board and solder those parts, some of these parts are just too small. They're just too small. Like humans, we, when we're trying to, let's say we made a mistake on a very small part, we cannot just replace that very small part by hand. We oftentimes have to take that board, put it into a machine and have the machine replace it because it's just too small. We can never actually get it done. And, and where I'm, where I'm heading with all this is what, hoping to talk about that sort of relationship you build with your suppliers, right? Because I have to imagine at a certain point, you start to align your design to your supplier's capabilities, right? So you say, you were talking about, here's what the customer needs. They need this thing to not fall out of their hand. And you said, well, we're, we want to put a 16th of an inch, you know, bumps all over this handle. And somebody raises their hand and says, Hey, you know, supplier A, who we use all the time, those guys can only get eighth of an inch bumps on the handle, which I know that sounds crazy. Believe me, I understand. Anybody can create a 16th of an inch. Anyway, you get my point. Do you do you find yourself in that situation where you're kind of aligning your designs to to your to the capability of your supplier? And and is that is that realistic or you just go find another supplier? To a small extent, yes. We'll do design reviews with our suppliers beforehand. Mm. Maybe when we're you know, 60 to 80% done with the design, we'll call up one of our, our shops and say, hey, we're going to be sending this your way. Here's what the design looks like right now. What can we change to make this more machinable, more ma manufacturable for you? And they'll well, you're often a good give engineering us firm. <laughs> really great tips. Well, it's, yeah, it, it's super helpful. You, even senior level engineers, you know, yeah. they're not out making parts every day. They're, they're designing right. and testing and, and things like that. So there's just no expectation that they're going to have it all figured out. So talking with the people who are actually making the parts, I, I'm sure your customers call you guys up, right? Be like, hey, they Chris, do. Yeah. Yeah, what, what are we? The ones that listen this to this show do. There you go. Yeah, and and they're they're the ones that are getting cheaper parts. <laughs> it's true. No, it's absolutely true. It's funny that you mentioned cheaper parts. We were supposed to, <laughs> we were supposed to record another episode of, of oh, the Pick Place boy. podcast last week, all about how to make boards cheaper and everything. But that got derailed by I was on my I was on my way into work, 
and I was I was passing an accident and there's cops and fire truck and ambulance. I'm like, oh boy, that looks bad. And I'm trying to drive around all the glass and plastic and metal and everything that's all over the road. And then I look and I see that it's my wife's like best friend. Oh uh, no. got in the car accident. Yeah. Oh. So I com- completely derailed our ability to have the conversation have, sure, have yeah. that recording, which we'll do in yeah. the future. She's totally fine, by the way, which is why oh, thank goodness. I don't mind talking about it. She's totally fine. Wasn't her fault. The the person who hit her admitted to missing a stop sign and mm. she's 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 okay. Her car is very much not okay. Ugh. But that's the the sacrificial car is much better than the sacrificial, you know, arm or neck or whatever. <laughs> Could have been very broken. true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, they're getting cheaper parts because they had the conversation. Right. They said, hey, we expect to build, you know, 5,000 of these every quarter. What do you think about this design? Does this work for you guys? Do you have any trouble with it? Do you need any special tools? So we have we have a couple of customers that do this with us all the time. They say, hey, we know this is going to be a hot product for us. We can tell the demand is there, but it's tricky. And we can tell it's going to be tricky for you guys to assemble. What do you think? Can, can you pull it off? And having that conversation is so helpful because sometimes – we may need to get a custom tool made. And that custom tool, I'm sorry, it ain't going to be made in two weeks. It's not going to be made in four weeks. It's going to be eight, 12 weeks before that custom tool is finished. And having that conversation when your design is 80% done is so huge. It's so huge. Don't wait until you need the product because we might might not be able to get it for you. And it's not just us. Nobody's going to be able to get it for you. Everybody else needs the tool too. It's not just because we're incapable of getting it done. You know, it's just, that's a tricky thing. Just take some time. And yeah. I, that principle also applies to, so we were talking about design basically, right? Is this design manufacturable? How can it be made more mm-hmm. manufacturable? We've also had luck having those beforehand conversations just when it comes to a, a, a big order on a, an aggressive time frame. So yeah. recently there was this piece of automated equipment that we were working on and this thing ended up being a beast ahead like 300 unique part numbers and I think something like seven or 800 total parts, custom parts that had to be made. And we were under a really tight timeline. Sounds like a Tuesday to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably for the electronics world. In the electronics world, that's a typical board. Yeah. So these are parts that a machine shop would have to put up in their their CNC, you know, mill or lathe. Mm -hmm. They'd have to create a program for each one of them. And then it takes, you know, whatever, 15 minutes, 30 minutes per part. So like the time adds up pretty quickly. And when when you're doing 700 Of of these and many hundreds of those are, are unique parts. It's it's a big job. Of course. And yeah. so we knew this was coming up. And, and rather than just finish the manufacturing documentation and then send it out and say, okay, go manufacturers, go. We yeah. called them up like a, a week and a half beforehand. And we said, hey, this order is coming for sure. We wanted to give you a heads up beforehand so you can get ready for it. And we ended up splitting the order into, I think, four different manufacturers just because of just how many say. parts there are. Yeah. But having those upfront conversations a week, a week and a half before we were actually ready to start manufacturing was huge. Yeah. And all four of our vendors were able to get ready for it. And so by the time we gave them a PO, they were off to the races. They weren't awesome. waiting around for everything. And we got all those parts in like two weeks. It was wow. unheard of. Yeah. Super cool. That's super, super cool. cool. Yeah. So we we had a very similar situation ourselves recently. We had a customer come to us and they said, hey, we need this many boards. And we're like, okay, first of all, how many have you had made before? And they they were like they're like ten. We're like that is not enough. You you cannot ramp from ten to ten thousand. You've got to go from ten to a hundred to a thousand to five thousand. You know, like you gotta you gotta ramp. It, it's building ten of something is so it's 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 night and day different from mm. building ten thousand of something. Yeah, and and building ten of something is different from building a hundred. And building a hundred is different from building a thousand. And building a thousand, you know. So and so we told them we said talk to another vendor or two because if you really need 10,000 of these hmm. we're all going to have to ramp this we're not yeah. the only ones everybody else is going to have to ramp it you're better off getting 2,000 from us 4,000 from them and 6,000 from somebody else than than trying to you know get one shop to do all of these things yeah and i i believe that's what they ended up doing i this is a i don't know i i talk to so many people every single day i forget where all these things land but yeah that's that's really smart, splitting it up over multiple manufacturers. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm also curious about, so when you are, I hear I hear on your podcast, you talk about de- designing automated systems. 
And when I hear, you know, automated systems, oftentimes I think about machines that manufacture goods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. And do you find that you have a situation? Because when I think of machines that manufacture goods, I think of like, well, we might need like two of these. And then we just keep those things running and they keep making the thing we need them to make. But do you find yourself going, okay, we've made two of them, but now we need six and now we need 10. And all of a sudden that, you know, you're calling up your suppliers to make those same things over again, or do you pretty much do like one-off orders and you're done? Most of what we do, unfortunately and fortunately, are one-off orders. Yeah, okay. And I say unfortunately and fortunately because on the one hand, it's a terrible business model. (laughs) It's it's really hard to be profitable making one of something. On the other hand, it keeps things really interesting and right. fun. I mean, one of the things that my team says they like working about here is the the large variety of different projects they get to work on. It's always something different yeah. and unique. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword. But certainly when we have projects where we're delivering even 10 of something, right? <laughs> it's a lot easier to make money there. Yeah. 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 No, I totally get it. It's funny because you would think in electronics manufacturing, it's easier to make money making 10,000 of something than it is think. to make 10 of something. But the trouble is 10,000 of something is bloody waters. Do you, do you know mm, what I mean by bloody waters? Yeah. 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 Not blue ocean. It, yeah. It's not blue ocean. Yeah. It, that's where all the battleships are. That's where everybody's killing each other over all the <laughs> margins. You know, there's so much competition and it's, it's very difficult to compete with manufacturers that, you know, like once you kind of like start building something with all this equipment, you can pretty much keep that equipment rolling and you can continue to create a quality product over and over and over again. And you don't necessarily need to have the pay scale that we have up here in Massachusetts and the engineering level and the talent that we have to supply here. You know, you can, you can probably take somebody who's maybe got some experience working literally at a fast food restaurant because they're used to, okay, I got to make sure this fry later is changed over every so often. Here's the maintenance routines. Like as long as they understand how to, you know, keep things moving along, they can keep an electronics assembly system moving along as well. And so you really, you end up with electronics manufacturers that have kind of two different specialties. You have the ones that are better at high volume. They've designed their team and, <clears throat> and, and their engineering to operations ratio is very, very small compared to here where we have, we're probably very, very heavy on engineering and lighter on operations, you know, because we're doing 10 of something, 50 of something, maybe a hundred of something over and over, which lately we're getting more and more high volume. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit different in this world. We, we do really enjoy working with engineering firms. And and this is, you know, again, why I keep coming back to this because engineering firms do kind of challenge us. They do kind of push us. It's sort of like lifting weights when we work with engineering firms, because they're the ones using the latest and greatest sensors and chips and things that are super tiny and things that we've never seen before. And we have mm-hmm. to learn how to handle the product stuff, you know, that we, we just keep shipping year after year after year. They're fun too. It's just a different sort of fun. You know, it's exercises, exercises kind of fun, but it's not like, you know, it's like, wow, yeah, I accomplished that. That's super cool. I can't believe I ran a marathon. But sometimes you just kind of like want to walk around a city and take in the sights. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what it feels like be- being able to build the product. You know, you're just like, ah, this is nice. You know, we're just getting some exercise, enjoying some fresh air. <laughs> my, but my, my heart rate isn't at 160 right now. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes yeah. it's a little bit easier that way. It's, Aaron, I think we, you and I could probably talk forever. We could probably keep this conversation going for three hours, but we should probably cut it off at some point here. Anything else fascinating, interesting that you didn't get? a chance to share you wanted to share with our audience and as a mechanical engineer who has to work with a bunch of sparkies hmm, as a mechanical engineer who has to work <laughs> with a bunch of sparkies you know one of these days i just need to block out like a couple of weeks take my vacation time and, and go learn more about electrical engineering that day is not today i really appreciate you having me on the show this was a lot of fun just getting to talk about not electrical engineering stuff, but hopefully people <laughs> still found it somewhat interesting. So thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have a lot of engineering firms that listen to the show, and I'm sure they have cross-disciplinary you know, needs. And the electrical engineers that listen to this show, I'm sure they work with the mechanical engineers, and they work on teams that have to mm-hmm. decide what's a priority. And 
you know, how to decide between it, between a glove, the gecko material or the 16th, 16th of an inch bump. Right. So there you go. Um, that's that's going to be uh, the title of this show. Gecko material <laughs> versus 16th of an inch bump. <laughs> that's That'll do real well in the SEO. Very sure. well yeah. might be. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we, we can't leave without my favorite part of the show talking about our, our pet peeve of the week. And, and mm. Aaron, I would be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity to let something let you let you talk about something that's your pet peeve. So let's let's have it, Aaron. Let's have well, it. Well, I love this question. I might have to steal this for my own podcast. <laughs> By all means, this is a very fun it. question. My pet peeve is when people spend inordinate amounts of time giving me details that I don't need. Oh, when, oh interesting. Uh, yeah, a, a conversation that that could and should be over in one minute lasts 10 minutes because <laughs> the person on the other side just keeps spewing details that I don't need to hear. Oh, so no. That, that is my pet peeve and, and my suggestion for all of you out there, not that all of you are doing this, but some of you I know are pointing <laughs> fingers here around the team. But anyway, is that know your audience and know mm. what they need to know and give them those things. And if they want more detail, they can ask for it, but don't flood someone with detail that they don't need. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great, Aaron. If, if I'm understanding this correctly, is it sort of like, like uh, you know, somebody comes to you and they're talking about getting a piece of aluminum milled, right? And they're like, well, you got to understand when you mill aluminum, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, dude, you have any idea how much aluminum I've milled? <laughs> like, exactly. Exactly. Okay, I get you. I and get they're you like, now. and I would have been here earlier, but you know, my wife had to take the car to the vet and get her pet checked up, and and then my son was doing this, <laughs> and like, and then I was, was like, I don't, I don't need to know all this stuff. You know, just tell me what I need to know, and let's move on. That's good. That's good. So you didn't have to hear about my friend getting in a car accident, why I couldn't record last week. Yeah, I just tuned out during that. I (laughs) pushed mute and started eating a snack. He'll be, he'll finish at some point. At some point, I'll get through this. Yeah. Well, if if you're not into that, I'm not sure if the Pick Place podcast is right for you because I I just waxed poetic. Well, there there is a time and a place for everything, right? (laughs) Context is definitely important in that. So I, if I was to phrase this another way, I would, I would, I said, I, I, if I'm hearing this right, concise with your words, be mm, concise be, yeah. and get to the point. Perfect. See, that was Excellent. beautiful, eloquent, right. beautifully good. expressed. I love it. I love it. Aaron, how can people get in touch with you? How can they subscribe to the, well, tell us about the show and, and how can they subscribe to the show and get in touch with you if they mean, need mechanical engineering expertise? Great. Yeah. You can find us online at teampipeline.us. A caveat there, we do not do anything having to do with pipelines or oil refineries. Oh, yeah. You never never explained the name. Sorry. You were supposed to explain the name. Yeah. Explain the name for us. Okay. So I I grew up in Hawaii on the east side of Oahu and surfing. That's what I did growing up, especially in high school. And and it it was my my first love. And if I had to pick one thing to do for the rest of my life, it would be surfing. I just love it so much. Even more than jujitsu. Sorry. But... The not North a lot of Shore, surfing in Arizona, I take it. Not yet. However, <laughs> all right, here's another tangent. Quick uh, tangent. Oh. They are building a surf park here. Oh, like a, nice. A legit surf park. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Anyway, on the North Shore of Oahu is a stretch of the most famous surfing beaches in the whole world, just referred to as the North Shore usually. And arguably the most famous surfing beach on that stretch of coast is called Bonsai Pipeline, or as it's commonly referred to simply Pipeline. So when I started my company, I thought, you know, Pipeline, that's where the best of the best go to surf. And I I thought, I I want the best of the best engineers here. This is where they come to to really hone their skill and and perform magic, right? So that's really a throwback to my days growing up surfing in Hawaii, Pipeline. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So it's it's teampipeline.us. Teampipeline.us. And a plug for the show too, remind remind us of the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's the Being an Engineer podcast. And we talk with high-performing engineers from around the world. We've got uh, James Hobson. got some heavy hitters on there. We do have some pretty cool people. I'm still trying to figure out why they agree to be on our show. James Hobson, who is the the hacksmith on YouTube. He's kind of this Mm -hmm. YouTube sensation, got like 12 million followers or something. Does some really, really cool stuff, making movies into real technology. But we've had your audience 
won't think this part is as cool, but uh, John Hirschdick, who is the founder of SolidWorks, which is like the industry standard. Trust CAD. me, I drooled when I saw that John was going to. Oh, get did a you? Job. Oh my oh. god! I like. I, as soon as it downloaded, I'm like, pause the current podcast, listen to this right away. I love John. He's he a was good, wonderful. Oh, and yeah. his background story with the the casinos and everything, the oh, movie they made about his life. Yeah, like, right. So awesome. unbelievable. So awesome. Yeah, I met him once. A show for. He he's an investor in one of our customers, uh, okay. startup, and and we build boards for him. So we they, our our customer invited us to the show, and they introduced me, and I was like, oh my god, this is this is amazing. Yeah, I was blown he's, away by me. He's like John. like, yeah. yeah, engineering royalty, and he's the most down to earth person. Totally. You can possibly imagine. Yeah, like totally. I expected this guy to be completely aloof, like. <laughs> Because <laughs> he's so stinking smart, and yeah. and he's built, you know, he's probably worth billions. He's got a lot. Be. A he's got to be yeah. worth billions. I don't know what it and, is. And uh, he was just so easy to talk to. He was just so chill, and he was so excited, enthusiastic, and wanted to listen. And mm-hmm. yeah, anyway, sorry, sorry. Mm-hmm. John's yeah. amazing. John's amazing. Others, yeah. you had you had somebody from NASA on your show. Yeah, David O, oh, super cool oh. guy. He was the like the system architect for the Mars Curiosity mission. And he talked about living on Mars time. I think it's like 20, 25 hour cycle Mm. or something. So So cool. And he did it with his whole family, right? With his whole family. So cool. Yeah. Oh gosh. It was such a, that was such a great episode. You got some heavy hitters on there. So anybody who's interested, where do you find that? You can go to our website. There's a a link in the navigation up on the top. The menu is just the podcast there. That's probably the easiest place. I can't remember. If you just search for it, you can just search. What is it? It's called Becoming an Engineer, right? Being an Engineer. Oh, Being an Engineer. Excuse me. Search for Being an Engineer podcast and it'll come right up. Awesome. And uh, if anybody uh, wants to get in touch with you personally, is the best way to just get started on the website? Or do you you want to share your email address or anything? LinkedIn? Yeah, you can send me, just submit a form on the website or okay. I'm pretty responsive on LinkedIn as well. Just send me a, a invite request and we can chat there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. We like to conclude each show just by reminding our audience too, that they can get in touch with us. Contact at pickplacepodcast.com. We are, we are on the Twitter still. I know it's trendy and cool to be off the Twitter, but whatever, we're still on the Twitter. At Circuit Hub and at WAssembly, by all means, reach out to us anytime. And uh, as always, please tell a friend, anybody you think might be interested in hearing the show, uh, let them know about it. It's really the best way. You know, you can, we invite you to write reviews and stuff, but letting a friend know can a lot of times be the best way to spread the message about the show. So we appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Pick Place podcast. If you like what you heard, consider following us in your favorite podcast app and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks very much, everybody. Thanks, Aaron. All right, yeah. Thanks, Chris, Melissa. Great.